Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Jim Doherty puts on his cowboy hat to tell the story of the Donegal man who became a Wild West hero, poet and entertainer in Captain Jack Crawford, the Poet Scout. This actual person who was from here and writing about it and writing in a way that we could easily understand, uh, I thought, well, I can't ignore this. Alistair McReynolds is a writer and broadcaster on Ulster Scots history and heritage. He is particularly interested in the story of the Scots-Irish in America. I first became aware of him when I, a kinsman of my own, Robert McReynolds, wrote a book called 30 Years on the Frontier. The man he is talking about here is Jack Crawford, a man who experienced the West like few others and shared that experience with the world. It was a very interesting book all in all, but one paragraph stood out for me in the book. and I have it here in front of me. And I thought it was really well written and on the point and a description of Jack. And I then decided to follow it up and look into Jack in a bit more detail. Jack Crawford was born in Carndona, County Donegal, and lived a life of adventure that few could imagine. This is Robert McReynolds writing in 30 Years on the Frontier. And in 1875, when Jack was appointed a captain of the Black Hill Rangers of Dakota, McReynolds made his uh, acquaintance and he wrote this about him. Captain Jack Crawford, the poet scout, is one of those noble characters whose memory will live so long as records exist of the pioneers who braved the vicissitudes of the frontier and made possible our Western civilization of today. A man of broad mind, daring and brave, and yet with all the sweet tenderness of a child of nature, he became great by achievements alone. Others have gained a temporary fame by dime novel writers. Captain Jack, in comparison with others, stands out as a diamond of the first water. He has helped to make more trails than any scout, unless it was Kit Carson. That was before the war. During that struggle, he was wounded three times in the service of his country. When the war closed, he was for many years chief of scouts under General Custer. He laid out Leadville in the Black Hills in 1876 and was of great service to the government in the settlement of the Indian Troubles, which succeeded the Custer Massacre. But that's all ahead of us. We'll start at the beginning with local historian Sean Beatty on a cold, windy day. We're standing here in the grounds of Carnadona Presbyterian Church. This is where Jack Crawford was actually baptised. He was born on the 4th of March, 1847. Really at the very height of the famine, so it was a pretty difficult time. It was a beautiful place to be, even the weather's not very warm. Because on the left-hand side, you can see Cleves Nyacht. And then, as you move along, then you see the hills of Clonmany. And then you have the valley down below and the plain of MacTaher and the water. So it's a very important area for the point of your Christian heritage as well. Another local historian, Maura Harkin, has researched and written about Jack, but unfortunately couldn't take part in this documentary. However, she kindly shared her research with us. Yeah, Maura Harkin has uh, mentioned this in her book, and John Cunningham, one of the elders of the church, has some records as well. It is the, the baptismal record, and it states the child is John Crawford, date of birth the 4th of March, baptised on the 7th of March, his mother is uh, Susan Wallace, and he describes a Presbyterian, and his father is John Crawford. He was also John, people called him Jack. So this is the record we have here in the church. I was curious though, I've lived in this area all my life, 
I'd never heard about Jack until a couple of years ago. So why the upsurge in interest now? The reason why it's come back into public prominence is the, the Ulster Scots researchers have actually been responsible for bringing it back to life again. As the Ulster Scots community is very, very proud of this figure because of the military activity and his humanity and his work for charity as well. We'll go down and see the plaque. Sure, we'll take a look at the plaque. And, uh... The plaque Sean mentioned there was erected by the Ulster History Circle, a voluntary organisation that places commemorative plaques in towns and villages all over Ulster in honour of men and women who have contributed to the province's history. Maud Hamill explains how they learned about Jack. Through our very good friend Alistair McReynolds, we said, what about the Poet Scout? And we're all saying, who? Because quite frankly, many of us had never heard of him. We like to honour those people who have been forgotten in history, but have achieved. And here we have this man from Donegal who became very famous in America. And the folklore behind that man is amazing. And we felt he needs to be brought to the fore again. And this is what we have done. We're standing here on the diamonds in Carondona next to the plaque to Captain Jack. Sean, could you maybe tell us what's on the plaque? Yeah, the plaque says Ulster History Circle, Captain Jack John Wallace Crawford, 1847-1917. The Port Scout, Chief of Scouts, US Army, writer, entertainer, born in Carondona, lived here. 1857 to 61. This was the house where he lived as a child. There were some surprises in Jack's family background. Alistair McReynolds. Yeah, born in Carndonagh, both parents were natives of Scotland, but had moved to Donegal. The father, John Austin Crawford, born near Edinburgh and noted for making political speeches and was an advocate of a free form of government. So Jack must have imbibed some of that, I think. He became such a thorn in the side of authority that he was banished from Scotland with some kind of price on his head to County Donegal. And there he married the daughter of another refugee, Susan Wallace, who claimed descent from no less a personage than Braveheart, Sir William Wallace. But Donegal wasn't the final refuge of of such an energetic and ambitious family. John, what would this area have been like back when when Jack was a young lad and grown up? Obviously, times were very difficult during the famine period, and he was lucky he survived when so many children died very shortly after birth. But moving into the 1850s, you know, Karen Donner was recovering. Agriculture was quite prosperous, and even during the famine itself, there was loads of corn on sale in the diamond, but the trouble is people were starving, they couldn't afford to buy it. The corn was being exported, and then people were emigrating. So this was quite a thriving, prosperous community in the 1850s when he was in his school days, as it were. Now, he didn't get much school education. There was a national school from the Botu. He really had a very rudimentary education he left here. Jack's childhood was hard, made harder by his father, as Maud Hamill explained. It was a sad childhood. The father was a tailor, and we also know that the father would have imbibed on the local drink. That caused a lot of problems in the family. So much so that when Jack's mother was dying in 1867 in America, she made Jack promise never to touch the demon drink. Alcohol would feature in various ways throughout Jack's life. And he kept that promise to the day he died, even round the campfires in Dakota, when he was out in the wilds scouting or sitting round a campfire where he wrote many of his poems. He never imbibed. He made a promise to his dying mother that he would never touch the drink because the drink ruined their family. 
A wild, carefree boy who loved the outdoors, education didn't have much appeal for Jack at this stage of his life. He didn't have much education. He would have been involved with the jobs here and there on the fair days, the market days, and he acted as a herd and he got the occasional jobs on farms, for example, the potato digging time or when turtles being cut. So he always had something to do, but he didn't have a job as such. There were, of course, other children in the family. There was William, and he was older, and there was Rebecca, who was older as well, and then there was Elizabeth and Austin, born in the 1850s. All the children had to contribute to the family income in some way or other, and they had to, they had to work very hard for everything they got, but they got by. Eventually, of course, the father emigrated. He adored his mother, but Jack had little time for his father, who seemed unable to settle anywhere or at anything. His father didn't have an influence on him. His father went off and it was at least four or five years before the mother followed him. That was hard. That was hard to leave your children. And then send for them years later. She left children with Jack. Barely in his teens, Jack was looking after his siblings and living in his uncle's house, where the plaque is today. There was a possibility that effectively the uncle had had enough of them. He was not an easy man, apparently. And Jack had said in some of his letters, and he was cruel. We don't know anything more than that. But life would have been hard, as it would have been for anybody in those years. We do know that children all travelled on a ship with Jack, and the ship was called the Zerd, Z-E-R-E-D. They arrived in, in Pennsylvania uh, on the 13th of May, 1861. Despite the father's many faults, Jack's mother had followed him to the US, hoping to change him and secure a place for the family. Sad thing is that whilst she went out to America and left the children with the uncle in Carn, she had only about four years before she died. The father, in what I've been reading or researching, was pretty cruel to her. And I think they tried to make ends meet in Duddy That's why the father went off. But they would have been they would have been out in the wagon train and things mm. like that. There was no doubt about it. They were the early settlers. 1861 and the Crawford children sailed from Londonderry to join their parents in Minersville, Pennsylvania. When he got there then, you know, he started working in the mines, looking for slate, picking slate out of the coal seams, I suppose, for very low wages, $1.75 a week or something. Born at the height of the famine, Jack now found himself in the US at an equally dramatic time in history. And at that time, of arriving in America, their father had already left to join the struggle for the Union and eventually for, you know, emancipation of the slaves. Wounded twice, severely the second time, the combination of his wounds and chronic alcoholism would hasten the death of Jack's father soon after the war. He cheated on his age as people who often did into the army and at the age of 15 he actually got involved in the Civil War. The dull, back-breaking work of picking slate for $1.75 a week couldn't compete with the excitement and thrill of war. Jack craved adventure. He was wounded and he was taken to hospital in Philadelphia, which is run by the Sisters of Mercy, who were very good nursing and education. And just while he was in that hospital, that he learned the rudiments of reading and writing properly. He was only there for nine weeks, so you have to say he was a fairly quick learner. Jack was lucky to survive the war. He was wounded three times, one wound leaving him with a slight limp for life but learning to read and write would change his life dramatically. The Civil War was savage, 
with newly developed, more destructive weapons causing massive loss of life on both sides. Alistair McReynolds. Here's a poem about the Civil War. He has no illusions about what war is about. Um, um, the last roll call, page 30. And I think it gives that great sense of what uh, the Civil War was like. For it was a different war in a way. I think the First World War, if you want a war, that resembled it. Suddenly they had, you know, weapons and ammunition that could take your arm off. Had tremendous impact. Must have been extremely frightening. And you get some of that feeling of this middle of a battlefield, horror and movement and danger in this poem by Jack. With pallid face, a soldier brave lay dying, his lifeblood dampening the southern sod, when all around him bleeding forms were lying, with dim and death-touched eyes upturned to God. On every side the battle roared and thundered, and shot and shell with maddening shrieks flew by, and many souls from mangled bodies sundered, soared upward to the master's camp on high. Here, here, the dying soldier eager muttered, and passing comrade knelt above his form and asked him what he wished if he had uttered a call for help amid the battle's storm. Ah, he replied, I need no help from mortal, and o'er his face a smile angelic came. The role is being called at heaven's portal, and I but answered when I heard my name. After the Civil War, with his newly acquired literacy skills, Jack secured a position as postmaster in Numidia, Pennsylvania. In 1869, he marries Anna Marie Stokes, the local school teacher, and they have five children together. But family life and staying home don't suit Jack. In 1875, he heads west on the Black Hills Gold Rush. After that, he became a correspondent for the Omaha Daily Press. In his early 20s, then, he joined the Black Hill Rangers and he was appointed a scout for the Black Hill Rangers. That was the beginning then of his military and writing career because after the Civil War, he started writing poems and writing poetry and writing plays later on in life. And the amazing thing about his poems is that a lot of them are about Donegal. So really, he left Donegal, but they say it never left him. He was able to write about it and wrote some fine poems about Donegal. His longing for Donegal and his departed mother stays with Jack throughout his life, and they feature strongly in his poetry. He's prospecting, scouting, and working as a correspondent for the Omaha Daily Bee in the Black Hills, reporting tales of lucky strikes, lawlessness, and life in the camps. But drink plays no part in his frontier life. The fellow was actually wounded in the Civil War. A contribution to his death at a young age was alcoholism. When his mother was dying, she made Jack swear a solemn oath at her deathbed that he wouldn't drink alcohol. And Jack stuck to that in what must have been difficult circumstances because liquor was everywhere on the frontier and was used as a weapon against the Native Americans to play them with rum, and Jack was very much against that. And a couple of times had positions that put him in control of that, but he felt that very strongly. You see the alcohol thing occurring in his life in that he once brought a bottle of whiskey, I think it was from General Eugene Carr, to Bill Cody over 100 miles, never touched it, and Cody said he was the only person on the frontier that could have done that. Jack is now meeting and befriending some of the legendary names of Western mythology. Men like Wild Bill Hickok, Buffalo Bill Cody, 
and General Custer. Another critical date in his life was 1876. He replaced Buffalo Bill Cody, Chief Scout for the 5th Cavalry. He resumed his military career having dropped out for a period and having worked in the post office. These are turbulent and dangerous times in the West. As the US pushes further west, conflict with the Native Americans explodes into all-out war, the Great Sioux War of 1876-1877. On June the 25th, 1876, his friend General Custer would perish along with all of his men at the Little Bighorn. A couple of months after the Custer massacred the Little Bighorn, here's what Jack Crawford wrote. Did I hear the news from Custer? Well, I reckon I did, old pard. It came like a streak of lightning, and you bet it hit me hard. I ain't no band to blubber, and the briny ain't run for years. But chuck me down for a lubber if I didn't shed regular tears. Custer has one of these people who've been re-evaluated in recent years. and People can tell you he finished up bottom of his class at West Point, and he wasn't really a hero and so on. But Jack doesn't see him that way. Jack hangs on to maybe it was Jack who helped create the original myth. In the poem, The Death of Custer, he says, I served with him in the army in the darkest days of the war, and I reckon you know his record, for he was our guiding star. And the boys who gathered round him to charge in the early morn were just like the brave who perished with him on the little horn. So you're referring there, of course, to the battle of the big horn and the little horn and so on. Custer's last stand was, you know, like a 9-11 amongst the settlers, the people there. People who had been of moderate disposition in inter-Native American relationships suddenly became a lot more hard, and you see it in Jack's writing as well. The U.S. was convulsed with shock and disbelief. Custer had to be avenged and the Indians subdued. On September the 8th, 1876, after a gruelling campaign and chase, the cavalry under General Crook found the camp of Chief American Horse at a place called Slim Boots. The camp included many warriors who had fought at the Little Bighorn some months earlier. It was at this point then that he won the name of being the Toad Scout uh, because he was involved in taking dispatches from uh, Slim Boots to Fort Laramie. And in those days, during warfare, it was important to get news from the battlefront to the press. The papers were vying with each other. And uh, he is noted for his speed in which he went from one battle site to uh, Fort Laramie. This is an important date as well. So 1876, of course, was the first U.S. victory over the Sioux. Jack was involved in several campaigns against the Native Indians, uh, the Sioux being one, the Apache being the other. This exploit made Jack a national hero, riding over 350 miles in four days through rough terrain, dodging hostile natives to bring news of the victory at Slim Boots to an anxious and angry nation. Jack himself was incensed at the death of his hero Custer and wanted revenge but he would regret this later. Jack killed two Indians, scalped one of them, and thereafter felt incredibly guilty when he thought about it, because he's a person of some tenderness, and in some ways a loner. I mean, a lot of his activities were lonely activities, apart from being in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, but as a miner or a scout, that kind of role, it was a lonely life. And I think Jack, at the end of his life, pondering what he had done, was concerned about it. He ended his days in Long Island, New York, which is about as far as you could get from the Black Hills of Dakota. And it seems like Jack turned his back on all of that. 
After the Little Bighorn, Jack wrote about the Indians in very harsh, scathing terms, but this didn't last. He began to see them differently, to understand their situation. He did change that view, actually. He's writing certainly about what he's seen, what he's experiencing. But one of the things that I didn't know until I was researching was after the Little Bighorn, after Buster's last time, you had the unsettling of the Indians and he was able to help the government because he understood them. I can say that he lived the dream. It wasn't a dream, it was fact. And he actually was able to rise up to that occasion. Summer of 1876 was to bring more bad news to Captain Jack with the murder of his good friend, Wild Bill Hickok in a saloon in Deadwood. This is a funny poem in a way, The Burial of Wild Bill, because in it, Jack is expected, says how sorry he is and what a, a hero Wild Bill Hickok was, rooting out these bad guys in, in the Old West and so on. But then he jumps beyond that and he imagines the Wild Bill being given leave almost from heaven to go and take his revenge, uh, to go from heaven down to hell and get the guys that did him in. Jack hasn't got in the poem to the full message of forgiving those that do you down. It's called The Burial of Wild Bill. Under the sod in the prairie land, we have laid him down to rest with many a tear from the sad rough throng and the friends he loved the best. And many a heartfelt sigh was heard as over the earth we trod and many an eye was filled with tears as we covered him with the sod. Under the sod in the prairie land, we have laid the good and the true, an honest heart and a noble scout has bade us a last adieu. No more his silvery laugh will ring, his spirit has gone to God. Around his faults let charity cling, while you cover him with the sod. Under the sod in the land of gold, we have laid the fearless bill. We called him wild, yet a little child could bend his iron will. With generous heart he freely gave to the poorly clad unshod. Think of it, pards, of his noble traits while you cover him with the sod. And while he sleeps beneath the sod, his murderer goes free, released by a perjured gaming set who'd murder you and me, whose card hearts dare never meet a brave man on the square. Well, pard, they'll find a warmer climb than they have found out there. Hell is full of just such men. And if Bill is above today, the Almighty will have enough to do to keep him from going away. That is, from making a little scout to the murderer's home below. And if old Peter will let him out, he can clean out the ranch, I know. You're listening to Captain Jack Crawford, the Poet Scout, on Documentary on News Talk. In late 1876, Jack decides to leave the Black Hills to take on a surprising new challenge. With his popularity high following his Indian War exploits, Jack accepts an invite from his friend Buffalo Bill to join his Wild West show. But while he enjoys performing, he's not happy with some aspects of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Buffalo Bill's Wild West. Jack is a writer, essentially, and a performer, you know, of that sense of the words being all important to Jack of reading poems and telling stories. And I think he felt Buffalo Bill's act was too built around stunts and glamorizing the whole thing and treating the old Sioux chief, Sitting Bull, as a, somebody that wheeled on. Jack, I think, thought that was demeaning. 
So he preferred to do what he called an entertainment, a performance, and telling jokes and stories and reading poems. Although he, he adopted the garb, he looked the part, you know, with the, the hair and the buckskins and all the rest of it. He may look the part of the frontier hero, but Jack doesn't agree with the sensationalism and this portrayal of the West and the Indians. He believed in a more honest interpretation. Yes, the shows make me wonder how his thinking was to do that. What triggered that? Here I am. Uh, what am I going to do? I think that the idea would have been to read poetry first and then the thinking came of, oh yes, well I can do this. I can show them how the guns are twirled, how I can lasso, and I've got all this. I mean, he's dressed like, you've seen the photographs of him, you know, what, like Wild Bill Hickok, the, the, the hat, the cowboy hat with the, the band for the bullet. And um, I think uh, he had that. And he thought, well, I'll make something of this and I will do a show and I'll read my poetry and I'll sing. He was obviously able to sing and that would have come from round the campfire. In the summer of 1877, their stage partnership ended, although they remained lifelong friends. The incident that sealed it only confirmed Jack's aversion to alcohol. On another occasion, not so humorous, when he was performing with Buffalo Bills while West showed. He shot himself in the groin during one of the acts and he blamed it on Cody being drunk and his timing or something being out. So Jack had strong feelings about drink and the dangers of it. In 1879, Jack relocated his family from Pennsylvania to New Mexico. For a few years, Jack leads a busy and varied life, training his hand at mining, ranching, scouting, and all the while writing and performing. But he's not an easy man to figure out. Sometimes Jack comes across as someone who enjoyed great reverie with his friends in the campfire, singing and putting on performances. Sometimes he croaks across as pretty lonely. One time when he was in a cabin in Caribou, up in British Columbia, sub-zero temperatures, and he'd been prospecting for gold, and he penned these lines. Lonely in my cabin musing, how the time does pass away, not a soul to wish me gladness, not a friend to pull my ears, while my heart is filled with sadness, thinking of the passing years. You get that sense with him, there's a melancholy, and he uses that phrase a lot, you know, under the sod. So there is a sort of a, the two sides of the coin with Jack, that sadness, and yet at all times that gaiety. It was 1879 when he published his first book of poems. Very nostalgic about home, about the life there, about people and the loneliness. Because there was times, although he was on at campfire uh, with others, he was on his own quite a lot as a scout. You know, he would have gone off on his own. He had to. He lived by his wits, I think, in a lot of instances. And then his first set of poetry became what we could say a bestseller. Jack had a strong moral code and believed in treating people fairly. This made him a good person, but also a bad businessman as several of his ventures failed. He went broke one time when a tour flopped because he insisted on paying his cast and crew their full contracts. He always took the side of the underdog, the little man. He wrote a poem, was in his first book, published in 1879. It's called Only a Minor Kill, and it was less sentimental and more hard-hitting than much of his work. And it's said to have had a major influence on Bob Dylan in a song that he wrote called Only a Hobo. One day I spied an old hobo in the doorway he lay 
and it was written after the death of Commodore Vanderbilt, and it contrasted the ostentatious funeral of this wealthy man with the bleak and miserable funeral procession that Jack had witnessed following the death of a poor miner. And he wrote, Only a miner killed. God, if thou wilt, just introduce him to Vanderbilt, who with his millions, if he is there, can't buy one interest, not even one share. Kind of a thoughtful poem saying, you know, in terms of what life's about, uh, it's not all about wealth and owning shares. And one day there'll be an equality that's created in all human souls. And obviously he would have had an affinity with miners from his own experience as a miner. They talk about the horrendous loss of life and danger working in the mines. Before the poem begins, Jack tells us that three men a week were killed in that mine. He just feels that's so unfair that the poor are being so punished. But he feels that in a way, death is the great equaliser and he reels against Vanderbilt, somebody who's in his sights very much as a, as a rich man who cared little for the poor man as, as Jack sees him. For a man who didn't seem to care much about wealth, Jack still loved the idea of prospecting and striking it rich. We see in, in various parts of the story, Crawford very much interested in gold prospecting and on one occasion setting out with a party of about 60 men. It wasn't like he, he went off on his own to pan for gold. It was quite a big organised troop of men that went and he had closed his letter that week uh, to the Omaha Daily Bee and uh, he wrote this jaunty verse, which I think is quite good, and describes his enthusiasm and his get up and go for going off and, you know, finding your fortune floating in a stream. So he says, And now I reckon I'll just let up and prepare for a jolly old time. I'll pack me grub and wipe me gun as soon as I close this rhyme. And tomorrow, when day begins to dawn with hearts as light as the air, we'll start for the far off northern land for they tell us the gold is there. But these are still dangerous times in the West. 1881, uh, Jack was prospecting in New Mexico. He and his two companions were attacked by five Apache Indians. Uh, a bullet struck the breech of his rifle. Later examination showed other bullets pierced his coat in two places, and it was close. Despite this encounter with Indians, his attitude to them and their situation is changing. But he also became a post trader at Fort Craig, New Mexico, and engaged in ranching and mining. And it may be that the business role presented Jack with a different way of life and a different set of obstacles to be overcome. At that point, I think he probably changed his attitude a bit. He didn't see them as people to be cut down, sort of the only good Indians a bad Indian in terms of the frontier parlance. Ten years after, 1891 thereabouts, he was acting as a special agent for the Justice Department, investigating the illegal liquor trade in the Indian reservations of the Western States and Territory. So he was doing something, as he saw, for them, taking their health, preventing their exploitation, and preventing them from getting into trouble. And that followed his life, morality, his sense of the dangers of liquor on the frontier. That, in some way, was imbibed from his mother and the relationship with his father. But Jack's long and frequent absences from his family, scouting, prospecting or performing, would have a cost. Even when he was married uh, to Anna Maria Stokes, he left her, the family, the children that he had to her. And he also left her eventually because she died down in Pennsylvania and he died in New York in 1917. I mean, he wasn't a dissolute father in the way that his own father was, but 
he wasn't a family man and he separated from his family, who must have been long suffering, like let's face it. The long times he was away from home and he died alone then in Long Island. So I would have said he wouldn't have been unkind to his family, but he wouldn't put a lot of time or energy into delivering them. He may have been an absent father, but Jack loved his children and wrote many poems to them while alone on the prairie or prospecting. Jack wrote this poem, Our Nugget, about his daughter May Cody Crawford, that he named after his great friend Bill Cody, Buffalo Bill. Some call her blue eyes, and some call her pet, violet and sunshine, and sweet mignonette, golden hair, blue bird, and sweet little love, but I call her Mayflower, my little white dove. Mayflower, Mayflower, budding in beauty and love, daffodil dimples and daisies, I call her my little white dove. Eyes like her mother's, and lips like a peach, cheeks like two apples that's just out of reach. Ears like bright amber with gold hair above, my own little Mayflower, my little white dove. Between 1893 and 1898, Jack built a reputation as one of the most popular writers and entertainers in the US. But he was always thinking of home, of Donegal. Recently, he uh, made a return visit to Carandona in 1894 as part of a world tour. And he appeared in Carandona in Derry as well. A poster for his visit to Carn, which I have here, I'll have a look at it. It says, Our Johnny, Captain Jack Crawford, the Poets Scout, former Chief of Scouts, United States Army, in his unique frontier medley. And then he looked the part of the Scouts, you know, he had a broad rimmed hat, moustache, and a beard. And uh, the uniform that he wore was of the entertainer of the period. He had this yearning for Donegal, and I think when he came back in 1894 to perform at Cardona, he was twirling the guns, he was last suing. He looked like Wild Bill Hickok, well, the one that we all know of, um, and he was a hit. A mission was a shilling. Now, that was quite a bit of money in 1894. From there, then, he appeared in the Guildhall, another sold out, and he is described as, without doubt, Robbie Burns of America. He has kindly consented to give one of his wonderful entertainments, the entire proceeds of which will be applied to a charitable object. In other words, he was putting money back into the area for hardship. An amazing, amazing man. I would have loved to have heard of him. He set sail on a steamship, the Teutonic, and did a seven-week tour to Europe, but the visit to his childhood home in Cardona, and he said, it did my heart good to receive such a reception as that granted me by my townspeople. Scenes of his boyhood brought forth intense emotions. Standing in the house where he was born, he recalled the sad, sweet smile of his mother's face, an image that he included in a poem about his birthplace. Those words, sad, sweet smile, to me sums up Jack's character to some extent. There was a sadness and there was a sweetness. There was humour but there was a melancholy as well. Jack was home, a celebrity in the town he had left penniless and illiterate 30-odd years before. We're told that in the uh, flyer that he was a soldier and a scout, a poet and an orator, that he had irresistible humour, and there's a period of touching pathos, and that there were thrilling recitals, graphic word pictures of the romantic borderland. We're told that Jack Crawford is known wherever the English language is spoken, 
I'm quoting from the poster. Uh, that took place on the 7th of August, 1894, at the courthouse in Carondonna. A really exciting event in Carondonna. You just have to imagine it. This colourful character coming back. He was a soldier. He was known for his poetry. He was a writer. He was an orator. He was a singer. He was a local guy made good. He really was a celebrity. And he came back for a one-night show in the courthouse in Carondonna. Jack's performances were widely acclaimed and he was feted wherever he went. He filled the courthouse and then went to Derry. He performed in Derry as well and he drew out all the major notables in the city came to hear him because of his fame, because of his appeal as an Ulster Scot as well. And the Bishop of Derry, Bishop Alexander, came to hear him. The Mayor of Derry was there as well and uh, many members of the corporation and he got a rousing reception there. And then he returned to America after that and he continued on his career. It was a very exciting event. And nowadays we're used to television, we're used to celebrities, but that was a world-class entertainer come to Karen, and then he was a local guy who had made his name. Karen's very proud of him. A really big event. I can't really stress how important that return visit of his war. The visit home had a profound effect on Jack. He wrote the poem in Donegal about his childhood in Donegal. Don't read that poem. Aye. In Donegal. Oh, would that I again a boy could be Roaming barefoot by the Irish sea, my world so small, watching the flocks that grazed beyond the shore, wrapped in the cast-off coat my father wore in Donegal. I see myself bareheaded in the breeze, wading the shoal salt water to my knees, the seagulls call, in wake of passing ships that greeted me, en route to God's sweet land of liberty from Donegal. Then comes a loved vision on the strand, a blue-eyed Irish lass who took my hand and hers so small and said to me in accents sweet and low, you'll never forget the girl that loved you so in Donegal. Oh, sweet and holy love of ten years old, Mary of Donegal with hair of gold, with rippling fall, goodbye, God bless you, little playmate Jack. You won't forget, some day you will come back to Donegal. Years passed, Again I found me on the strand, and I was just a boy once more, unmanned, bare feet and all. I sighted for Mary, as in days of yore, but whispering waves made answer, nevermore, in Donegal. Maud agrees that ideals of Donegal remained with Jack all his life. His whole life from the child was one of hardship. And I think, you know, when he wrote his poetry, especially on that beautiful poem of Donegal, he was thinking about Donegal may have been the Donegal, the myth that he would have liked it to have been, but he remembered the waves, he remembered the beaches, and he remembered Mary as a little 10-year-old, whoever Mary was, who he played with him. Jack seemed to know or meet many of the legends of the Wild West. Billy the Kid was one of them. Alistair reads about this encounter from his chapter on Captain Jack in his book, Kith and Ken. In the afternoon of the 13th, after sending the east side of the San Andreas and moving on to the plains, Jack encountered a lone horseman who was as wary as Jack as the scout was of the young man. Crawford soon guessed the rider's identity, William Antrim, alias Billy the Kid, wanted by the authorities for murder. They shared conversation and rations and then went their separate ways. Jack later expanded on the meeting in his diary and in an essay entitled How I Met Billy the Kid which he intended to publish in a book for boys. Jack was very critical of the dime novels, blaming them for sending impressionable young men to early deaths or criminality. Jack used his encounter with Billy 
to underscore the baneful influence of dime novels. This is Darlis Miller. According to Jack, the kid expressed regret for his wild ways and admitted that dime novels and a reckless love of adventure drove him from a good home and a loving mother and frontier whiskey and bad associates did the rest. Those are Jack's words. More than likely, the Antrim tale contains a strong element of truth, as did most of the stories that Crawford told of himself. Billy, it might be added, was shot and killed by Sheriff Pat Garrett less than 12 months after his chance meeting with Crawford. Coincidentally, both Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett were of Irish descent. They were real, but also part of that Western myth of heroes and villains, the Lone Ranger, the OK Corral, and this town ain't big enough for the both of us. But Jack wrote about the reality. It wasn't this glamorous life. I can see his point about the dime novels because it was painted as this was a, a myth. This was something that everybody yearned for. Oh, I want to be a cowboy. Even in our Western movies of the 50s and 60s, that was pretend. Look, we all watched them, you know. You wrote Santa Claus for your cowboy outfit and you got cowboy annuals because you wanted to read about this life. But this man lived that life, not in the myth. He lived the real life. How much do you think our knowledge of the Wild West, as they called it, comes from the television and the films and so on, but which is also formed from Jack's writings? Jack's writings may have formed some of it, but I would have said more of it was, was from the dime novels that people wrote, Texas panhandlings and this kind of thing, which formed the stories of the Wild West. And then other people would take the actions of people like Kit Carson and blow them up. The stories lost nothing in the telling. Certainly Jack's didn't either, but he did embellish them more in a poetic way, in a thoughtful way. Although, you know, his poetry's sentimental, there's a tenderness and a thoughtfulness there and a consideration for the ordinary guy. Jack's not interested in generals, really. He's not interested in the Vanderbilts, billionaires of this world. In fact, he contrasts the poor soldier, the poor miner's lot with those people. There's a feeling for the common man there. We've mentioned before the strong connection between Jack Donegal and his mother. He wrote many poems about them both, and here's an extract from one. He's written this poem called Dreaming of Mother, and I'll read it. Last night I was dreaming of mother, yes, dreaming of mother and home, the little log hut where she blessed me when fortune compelled me to roam. How she prayed for her boy at that moment, while tears wet the locks on my brow. And I said the goodbye to my sister, farewell to the farm and the plough. Dreaming, dreaming, dreaming of home and of mother, dreaming of home wherever I roam, and dreaming of home and of mother, last night home and of mother. And oft while asleep in the wildwood, those scenes of my childhood appear, and surely the angels are watching while dreaming that mother is near. Oh, happy the thought, dearest mother, the hope of our meeting once more, when free from the world and its sorrows, we dwell on that ever bright shore. Dreaming, dreaming, dreaming of home and of mother, dreaming of home wherever I roam, and dreaming of home and of mother. All the research and the work you've done on Captain Jack, mm-hmm. how did you sum him up? I think he was looking for something. I think nothing was satisfying him. He was going to make a better life for himself. A man who had a very sad childhood, had to leave Ireland, went out to America in 1861, and then the war. He went in injured, 
That bullet that hit him on the side was a godsend for him to learn to read and write, and he made good use of that. Otherwise, would we ever have had his portrait or novels or that? We've never known about him. He had just blended into the history of another Irish immigrant. But what about his poetry, his literary legacy? Is it of its time, or does it have any relevance now? People have this thing about high culture and low culture. Uh, they rate certain people higher than other people. I would rate Jack pretty high. He's maybe not Robbie Burns, but he's not that far behind him. And his breadth of experience is certainly broader than Robbie Burns. What I get from him in particular is a sense of history. You know, whether he's a great poet or not, you learn a lot of history far more from his poems than you would from prose because you get insights into what people were thinking and what life must have been like. You know, you read a history book and it's a lot of prose and a lot of dates and things. So I get that from him. And whilst there is a certain sentimentality at times, it's the language of every man. The man on the street can read this and enjoy it and get something from it and be provoked by it and moved by it. Yeah, I read him quite highly. Jack lived a full life, a life of adventure and danger, but also of exploration and growth too. Learning to read and write changed his life and gave him opportunities that he could never have imagined. He became one of the key chroniclers of the West, telling the true story, not the myth. Jack rejected the popular belief that the only good engine is a dead engine and lobbied hard for better conditions for the Native Americans. We'll leave the last words to Alistair and Jack. There's the thing, I, I thought it was a comical little piece uh, from this here. Jack had a, a scrapbook that he kept a saddlebag uh, that contained more than 500 poems that he'd been composing since the Civil War days. And he also lost cherished letters from soldiers, statesmen all the saddlebag and you can gain a sense of his woe uh, from the poem that then subsequently appeared in the Daily Bee and here's a portion of it he says farewell companion of my soul no other book your tale can tell no other lines my heart console old book of yore farewell farewell Captain Jack Crawford, The Poet Scout, was produced by Jim Doherty and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.